Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Lewis Grossman, author of Choose Your Medicine, Freedom of Therapeutic Choice in America. Lewis, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Lee. This is a real pleasure. So when we talk about patients' right to choose what kind of treatment they receive, what kind of medicine they take, certainly this is top of mind for a lot of people in the era of COVID, but this isn't why you wrote this book. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the beginnings of your research and why you wanted to write this book and explain this topic to people? So my field of study is food and drug regulation and health law combined with American legal history. I'm a PhD historian as well as a lawyer. And for years in food and drug law, I'd been teaching a case called Abigail Alliance. Abigail Burroughs was a young woman from Falls Church, Virginia, who was dying of head and neck cancer and sought to obtain some drugs that were not yet approved by FDA, but had some promise of efficacy for her cancer. And she wasn't able to obtain those drugs. And after she died, her father, Frank Burroughs, founded an organization called Abigail Alliance, which sued FDA, saying that patients in desperate situations like Abigail's have a constitutional right to access these medicines prior to approval. They lost that case ultimately at the DC circuit, but it was always a very, very compelling class for me because I would be teaching a bunch of students who were self-identified as liberal, who would often almost unanimously say that they sided with Abigail in this dispute. And it started to occur to me that the politics of freedom of therapeutic choice are very different from the politics, the right-left, red-blue politics we often think about. And moreover, in the case, when they were trying to determine whether there was a substantive due process right, they examined the history of American attitudes towards access to medicine. And the majority and the dissent presented very different visions of this history. And I became interested in who had the better of that history. And so I decided to dive in and see what has been the history of American views towards therapeutic choice. And what I found is the history was a great deal more complicated than either the majority or the dissent in that case portrayed. And I didn't only look in cases and statutes, which is what judges tend to do, but I expanded my world of sources to everything from pamphlets to magazine articles to descriptions of parades and demonstrations, to hearings, to veto messages. And what I learned is that there is a very, very long, powerful tradition in America in favor of freedom of therapeutic choice. Now, finally, to answer your question, I will mention that I started this project six, seven years ago when nobody had even heard of COVID-19. And it is pure serendipity that my book was published in the middle of this pandemic. 
And indeed, I probably drove my publisher nuts by squeezing in at the end of the publication process as much as they would let me about COVID. And so COVID is in the book, uh, but it is not why I wrote the book. Truly, it, it must have really been quite an experience watching a lot of the themes of early American. The term paranoia is used a few times in the in the book and, and talking about paranoia with medicine. But, you know, watching this new era where we're in the middle of this pandemic, doctors didn't have easy answers about how to treat it. People were trying things that in normal times they would not have tried. It, it, it just watching history be written in front of you and then trying to send edits to your publisher. I, it must really have been an experience. It really was. And I also, to some extent, feel vindicated because <laughs> some of the themes that I was trying to um, elaborate on in the book are illustrated so well by what's happening in America today. And I will say that another thing to mention is that there had already been good work done on the history of vaccines and vaccine mandates and anti-vaccinationism. What I identified as a complete hole in the literature was a comprehensive history of people demanding access to the drugs and treatments they want without government interference. And I recognized right from the beginning that there were huge philosophical, ideological, and organizational overlaps between resistance to compulsion on the one hand and demand for access on the other hand. But I wasn't really going to focus on the freedom for, of, from compulsion part of it because there was already a bunch of good stuff written. If I were rewriting the book today, I probably would have woven anti-vaccinationism more thoroughly throughout the book. It certainly appears many times in the book, but it's where everybody's head is now. But it was too late to go back and revise the whole book based on current events. Well, I want to get back to COVID-19 and some of the issues courts are now having to consider. But let's give some grounding for my listeners about the history of American medical regulations, drug regulations. I think that, you know, many of you out there are attorneys. You are in a pretty highly regulated profession. You probably think of medicine as a highly regulated profession, and in many ways it is right now. But it wasn't always. Could you give people kind of a background? What did medicine look like in the early years of the Republic? Well, let's start by focusing on the fact that American medical regulation is much older than American drug regulation. American drug regulation, in its somewhat modern guise, uh, first emerged in 1906 with the passage of the food, the Pure Food and Drugs Act. There had been other state and even federal efforts before that, but drugs were a relatively unregulated sphere before the turn of the 20th century. But there was a great deal of another kind of medical regulation, which was medical licensing. From the beginnings of the Republic, Orthodox doctors tried again and again, successfully at first, and then unsuccessfully, 
and then somewhat successfully again, to embrace medical licensing regimes that by limiting the practice of medicine to people with certain credentials, certain education, would keep alternative practitioners out of the market. This was the tyrannical threat in the eyes of medical freedom activists for the first 140 years of American history. These medical licensing regimes were not always powerful, but they were, you know, effective and enforced in some places and were symbolically a terrible anti-constitutional presence in the American system to many Americans, going all the way back to the 1770s. I do think, too, when we think about if your instinct is to say, well, it's, it's good to only allow people who have been educated in medicine to practice medicine, you have to think about the thousands of years of, say, midwifery or the practice of natural medicines from, from herbs. If you were in the early 1800s, you were the most highly educated in the medical field that you could be. We still might today look at you and say, oh my gosh, you are advocating for what they called heroic medicine, which meant doing things to a person's body, which may not not help them, but actually hurt them. You know, intense purgatives. You reference the death of, of George Washington. So it is a more complicated story than just educated medical professionals good, everyone else bad. And I'm glad that, you know, you, you address that. I mean, if I could just add, arguably, the education of physicians at that time was to the detriment of medicine because medicine as taught in the medical schools was a rationalistic system based on theory, this archaic theory going all the way back to Galen in, in ancient times of the balance of the humors in the body. It wasn't really based, at least in its formal sense, on, on evidence. Therefore, what you had was orthodox doctors, as you said, taking what are known as, you know, uh, heroic measures, purgatives, emetics, blistering, bleeding, which may have brought some kind of comfort and relief in the minds of people who embrace that system, but from a modern perspective, were not effective. And in some cases, like George Washington's, may well have killed the patients. Most people in America in the early years didn't go to Orthodox doctors. Their health care came from a huge network of less credentialed people. Housewives were the primary dispensers of medicine and care in America, guided in many cases by widely published health guides and so forth. And then you had, you know, a whole bunch of sort of informal advisors on folk medicine, and you had bone setters, and you had abortionists. And so in some ways, it's possible that, for example, your local herbalist actually had a more evidence-based basis for their recommendations than your orthodox doctor did. Yes, and certainly, you know, many 
natural medicines, folk medicines later withstood the scientific method and were indeed proved to be efficacious. So when we talk about early American attitudes towards medicine and the various ways that you yourself might receive treatment, we tend to use terms like alternative medicine, like we're throwing a blanket over a very large area. And there wasn't just one school of thought here. Could you talk a little bit about what the varying sects were when it came to the thoughts about about medical treatment and what kind of views were out there and being expressed and fought for? So the first very large organized alternative medicine sect was founded by a herbal medicine proponent named Samuel Thompson, and his followers were known as the Thompsonians. And it was a very sort of regularized um, uh, set of treatments based on cayenne pepper and lobelia, and it attracted enormous, enormous support across America. And the Thompsonian movement, which was closely aligned with the Jacksonian Democrats more broadly, succeeded in dismantling the entire American medical licensing regime before the Civil War. Earlier in the century, almost every state had medical licensing. By the Civil War, none did, or at least none had a actually uh, effective and administered one. So the Thompsonians are very interesting, but they were joined over the course of the 19th century by other alternative medicine in the sense of giving medicine sects, including the homeopaths and the eclectics. What's interesting about the late 19th century is the rise of drugless sects, things like osteopathy and chiropractic and Christian science and mind cure. And they created their own fascinating dynamic with respect to medical freedom and to a striking degree succeeded even as medical licensing came back in the late 19th century to reserve a zone of freedom for themselves, either through explicit exceptions in medical licensing laws or by jury nullification or and also by, by other methods. And so this is the enormous range of alternative sects that we're talking about in America. And of course, when you come to uh, modern America, you're talking about a wide range of modalities as well. Let's talk about how that idea of, well, let's just try things, <laughs> changed once the scientific method was introduced and we had the ability to test drugs. All of a sudden, or maybe not all of a sudden, over a period of time, you are able to conduct scientific experiments to show, well, what does seem to help, what is not helping. How was that reflected in legislation and the law? How did we wrangle with that as a country and legal system? What's interesting, it, it is almost all of a sudden. It was a, a very brief period in the early to mid 20th century when the modern scientific method for assessing therapeutic efficacy arose. Let me start by saying that throughout American history, bodily freedom has been present 
as an aspect of arguments for freedom of therapeutic choice. But it was never the only argument, and it was not always the dominant argument. There are also arguments for economic freedom, especially resistance to monopolies. There were always arguments based on religious freedom. And for most of American history, one of the leading arguments for freedom of therapeutic choice was freedom of inquiry. The idea that millions of different doctors and patients just trying stuff is the way that medical progress is made. And as early as the, I'm sorry, as late as the 20th century, the early 20th century, evidence used in favor of medicines were still anecdotes and testimonials, basically, the type of evidence that is rejected by modern medical science. But rather quickly, over a course of a couple decades in the mid-20th century, the early to mid-20th century, we have the rise of what is known as the randomized controlled trial that many of our listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with. And this is a very, very structured way of determining whether or not a drug works. And the basic principles are that you have a group of subjects, you carefully control who those subjects are so there's some uniformity amongst them and that they have the condition that you're trying to address. And then you randomize them and put them in one of two groups, one group which gets the experimental treatment and the other group which gets a placebo, ideally. And what's interesting about this is that it's so contrary to the notion of freedom of inquiry that drove so much of uh, American freedom rhetoric for much of history, because this is kind of the opposite of freedom. It's saying, first of all, you can't get this medicine uh, before it's approved unless you enter a trial. And second, if you do enter the trial, not only might you get the placebo, neither you nor your doctor knows whether you're getting the placebo or the medicine. And this really kind of took the legs out of the argument that freedom of inquiry was a, a necessary value if you wanted medical progress. But it never quite dies. And even in like the AIDS activists' um, rhetoric, and even I would say among some of the COVID medical freedom activists, they still cling to this notion that trial and error on the ground is still a valuable way to determine whether or not medicine is effective or not. And we're seeing a lot of reversion to anecdote and testimonial in the world in which we live now and resistance to the randomized clinical trial as the sole valid basis for determining efficacy. I'll, I actually have an interesting story with respect to that, which is there was a physician or, or researcher who was very curious as to whether or not ivermectin, which is a, an anti-parasitic drug already approved for other uses, might work for um, COVID. And he announced that he was doing a clinical trial on ivermectin 
In other words, he was open to the efficacy of ivermectin, and he was basically attacked for being a Nazi doctor because he had a placebo arm in this study. And so many people thought that it was outrageous that he would deny half the people in the study access to this drug that people thought was a miracle drug for COVID. Well, I'm glad that you earlier brought up the AIDS epidemic because we can go back and we can look at this pandemic. You know, this happened mostly during my childhood and early teen years, but growing up watching ACT UP activists on the steps of the FDA saying, please, we are dying in droves. What is the harm of letting us try some of these medicines? We need to find something. We need to work more quickly. We cannot allow more years to go by. Uh, Could you talk a little bit about that environment that AIDS activists were in, the kind of different offshoots that came of that activism, because not everyone felt the same way about this debate, but it certainly is, you know, informative looking back about how hard of a discussion this is and can be when you have people dying in front of you. Yes, I will say that the ACT UP movement in association with other AIDS activists had a dramatic and probably permanent effect on American drug regulation. Before ACT UP started its activity, and by the way, it worked in one of the interesting strange bedfellows phenomena that I described throughout my book, they worked in in conjunction with with Reagan libertarians to try to uh, loosen up, if not dismantle, the FDA regulatory system. A lot of the Republican libertarians wanted to dismantle it. Most of the AIDS activists uh, vigorously denied that that was their goal. But they did want to change FDA's vision from one where their job was not only to keep unsafe and ineffective drugs off the market until there was scientific certainty that they were safe and effective, but also to consider making potentially effective drugs available earlier to desperately ill people who wanted to try them. In other words, there was this movement to say the risk-benefit analysis of drugs should in many cases be devolved from the federal bureaucracy down to patients and their doctors who may have a very different vision of what kinds or what degree of risk they're willing to take on in order for a certain likelihood of benefit. They educated themselves to the point where they could talk about both AIDS and federal regulation with the same sophistication as people within the federal bureaucracy, and they found an ally in somebody who is now having his his second period in in the in the uh, headlines. Uh, Anthony Fauci was a very important ally to them and has remained friends, by the way, with some of these AIDS activists to the current day. They really revolutionized drug regulation in various ways by leading to faster approval of drugs, 
by leading to approval of drugs less based on less evidence than used to be required if the drug is one with no alternatives for a serious condition. You may have read about the Alzheimer's drug that was recently approved based on what are known as surrogate endpoints that led to some controversy. And they also led to an increase in the availability of drugs prior to approval in certain instances. Now, that, that last success from the view of uh, AIDS activists has been less dramatic than some of the others because it remains the case, as I talk about in the book, that nobody has a right to demand that a pharmaceutical company give them an unapproved drug. And pharmaceutical companies are frequently or even usually reluctant to do so for various reasons we can talk about. And so it remains the case that although it is easier to get access to a drug prior to approval than it was before the AIDS activists went to work, it is still not easy. So there are a number of areas we can go into that branch off from this, but I'd like to talk about one drug in particular, Laetrile. So could you please explain to anyone who doesn't know what this was, what this argument was about, and uh, sort of the saga? And I think that there are still people today who argue that it's it, it really is efficacious, but, I, you know, let's talk about Laetrile and... Uh, what it could tell us perhaps about some of, for instance, the arguments going on now about COVID-19 treatments and drugs. So even at the height of American trust and confidence and pride in American medicine, especially in the wake of the successful rollout of the polio vaccine, there were dissenters medical freedom activists, and they tended to focus on cancer therapies. This is in large part because it took a long time for orthodox medicine to make much progress against cancer. There were early triumphs with respect to childhood leukemia and Hodgkin's disease. But for most cancers, not only could you get very little extra time from orthodox medicine, but it almost harkened back to the resistance to heroic medicine in the late 18th and the early 19th century, because what they did have was radical surgery and radiation and drugs that would make you nauseous and lose weight. And so there was a fair amount of freedom activism with, res with respect to uh, cancer therapeutics and a series of very popular alternative cancer drugs emerged in the 1940s and 1950s and then the 1960s. And one of the ones that emerged was a drug called Laetril. Laetril is derived from apricot pits, and it was never shown by any adequate, well-controlled study to do anything for cancer. But nonetheless, it attracted adherence. And initially, the adherents for Laetril were really from the right wing, 
people who thought that there was some kind of vile conspiracy between uh, the government and the pharmaceutical industry to keep effective medicines off the market so that they could profit. And in fact, in its earlier iteration, laetrile activism was largely led by the right-wing John Birch Society. But something remarkable happened in the 1970s. And this is my favorite chapter in the book because oh, mine too. it's writing about my boyhood, right? It's almost the most autobiographical. It's, it's about things that I remember. There's this massive decline in trust in American establishment institutions in the 1970s. It's due to various phenomena, reaction to the Vietnam War, to Watergate, to the oil crisis, to stagflation. And there was also pushback against faith in science. And, you know, there's various episodes that contributed to this. So I'd like to point out that the Manhattan Project of several decades ago, which was, you know, led to horrific consequences, obviously, but also led to pride in American technological know-how, kind of hit the shoals in, 19, in the 1970s with the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island, which ended up being, you know, a basis for a, a, a joke on Saturday Night Live, a, a skit. Uh, something similar happened in the world of medicine, which was the largely now forgotten disastrous rollout of a swine flu vaccine in 1976. The American public was warned a deadly swine flu is descending upon us. Just as Joe Biden rolled up his sleeve to get the COVID shot a month ago, Gerald Ford rolled up his sleeve in the Oval Office to get the swine flu vaccine. But the swine flu vaccine never came. Uh, sorry, the swine flu itself uh, never arrived on our shores. And predictably, a small number of people did suffer from side effects from the vaccine. And the federal health bureaucracy got an enormous black eye from that episode. And what's striking is they were attacked by both conservatives and liberals. And that's the main point I want to make about the 1970s before we talk about Laetrile in particular which is what you got in the 1970s was a bipartisan lack of trust in American establishment institutions. You had hippies joining fundamentalist Christians and agreeing on certain things. And one of the things they agreed on was medical freedom. So Laetril, FDA treated it like it would treat any other drug and said, no, it's illegal. There's no adequate and well-controlled trials showing it works for cancer. But there was an enormous upswell of enthusiasm for Laetril in the 1970s. State after state, uh, red and blue, passed Laetril legalization statutes. There were bills on the Hill to take away FDA's power to even regulate the efficacy of drugs. Polls showed that something like 70 or 75% of Americans supported legalizing Laetril. It was on the cover of Newsweek. Uh, to this day, I still remember that Newsweek cover um, coming into my house. It was discussed in Doonesbury. Everybody knew what Laetril was. And it was only in the early 1980s when 
the famous actor Steve McQueen of The Great Escape and The Towering Inferno died of cancer despite using Laetrile. And some studies came out from the National Cancer Institute suggesting that Laetrile did not work and indeed might even pose a risk of uh, cyanide toxicity, that finally the passion eased for Laetrile and it became sort of just another alternative medicine, which you can still find today on the internet and, and purchase it if, if you'd like to. Well, so yeah, let's let's get into what you see as the parallels here with things like hydroxychloroquine, Invermectin. You know, I have a number of friends and relatives who are medical professionals. For some of them, I have genuine anxiety about the kind of hostility they're being met with. Um, from patients' families, for example, who feel like you aren't trying this thing that could save my loved one's life. And they're being put in really, you know, tough positions. We have people going to local courts asking judges to order hospitals to give treatment that the hospitals don't have protocol for. Could you talk a little bit about the parallels, what you see here, and where do you think this might be going? Well, I'd like to talk about the parallels, but then talk about some striking differences. The parallels are that the support for ivermectin, and by the way, the support for ivermectin for COVID, I should say, because ivermectin is approved. Oh, it's for, great for river blindness. So, yes. Right. It reflects the same massive distrust in the medical and government establishment that Laetrile did. It goes further than skepticism about the competence of the medical establishment and actually starts to fade over into almost a paranoid uh, suspicion that there is a conspiracy against ivermectin. Now, what's the difference between ivermectin on the one hand and monoclonal antibodies on the other hand or the new Merck or Pfizer drug that that are, you know, the ones that are coming out, it's that ivermectin is a generic drug. It is quite cheap. And there is a conspiracy theory amongst many that people are being diverted away from ivermectin specifically so that the pharmaceutical industry can turn them to these expensive, newer, on-patent treatments. And there was always that element in the Laetrile dispute as well. The notion of a pharmaceutical company conspiracy, which was being uh, committed in conjunction with the medical establishment generally. You also see a lot of overlaps in some of the rhetoric uh, with respect to bodily freedom and with respect to even religious freedom from the 1970s. But let me point out a couple of interesting differences. One is that ivermectin is not an unorthodox medicine. Rather, it is being promoted for an unapproved use, but it's, it is a product of, you know, the pharmaceutical industry, which was very different from Laetrile. Laetrile, in its, in its time of highest popularity, was actually being characterized as a vitamin, a new vitamin, which sort of combined uh, right-wing medical libertarianism with the holistic medicine enthusiasms of the left. 
Ivermectin is not that. In its way, it's more similar to some of the earlier alternative cancer remedies, things like the Koch treatment and the Hoxi treatment in the 1940s and 1950s, which kind of had one foot in and one foot out of orthodox medicine. On the one hand, there are you know, scientists who have invented this drug and there are scientists who say it works. But on the other hand, rejecting FDA's role in controlling access to it or even in assessing its efficacy. Another difference between ivermectin today and Latrell in the 70s is, I mean, I don't know any details about what the political persuasions are of people who want ivermectin. But my, my sense is that the conservative side of the political spectrum is more likely to demand access to ivermectin than the more progressive side. That's different from Laetril, but that is also similar to the 1950s conservative activism for medical freedom focusing on alternative cancer therapies. So those are the big differences I see. There are so many topics that you cover in this book that I, I want to talk with you about and have my listeners know are in Choose Your Medicine. Uh, for example, there is an entire chapter on the right to assisted suicide. But what I really want us to get to is when we look at the area that in my lifetime I've seen the most change in, it has to be cannabis and when you look at what changed people's minds and led to legalization, it was not the recreational use, it was the medical use. And people who were in, you know, terrible pain, who found relief through the use of cannabis. And in my adult life, there's been such a sea change when it comes to the area of cannabis law and regulation. So could we talk a little bit about this topic? When cannabis was first raised in America as a good thing to use for different medical conditions, what was the attitude towards it? So it depends on how far back you're talking about. Cannabis was actually in the U.S. pharmacopoeia in the 19th century. It was never a very, very important drug, but it was a fairly widely used drug. And it was there until uh, the early 20th century when marijuana started to be identified as kind of the evil weed. There was very much a racial aspect to that because marijuana was used recreationally, largely by African-Americans in the urban jazz scene and by Chicano-Americans in the Southwest. And there was a huge counter-reaction, or not counter-reaction, there was a huge reaction against uh, marijuana and uh, suppression of it as a, a dangerous controlled substance which could uh, send people into, to borrow the title of a movie, Reefer Madness. And that was accompanied, by the way, also by the fact that during this period of the 30s and 40s, much more controllable and uh, effective pain control mechanisms, uh, drugs, did emerge as an alternative to cannabis. So cannabis was quiet for a while as medicine, but then in the 1970s, people started once again to say that marijuana might have some legitimate medical uses. And 
the main character during this phase of, of the medical marijuana movement was a fellow named uh, Robert Randall, who decided that medical marijuana was doing a good job at uh, treating his glaucoma. During the 1970s, the main effort to get access to marijuana was being done in the courts, as well as to some extent in legislatures. And there was this moment uh, in the early 1970s that we haven't spoken about. I'm sorry, the mid-1970s, where it looked like the 1973 abortion decision, Roe v. Wade, was going to be spun out into a broader medical freedom decision. And uh, Robert Randall actually won in court in a decision based on Roe v. Wade and became one of the only legal marijuana users in America. But that court tactic never really flourished. By the 1990s, activists for medical marijuana realized that um, they would have to come up with another method for legalizing medical marijuana. And that was public activism combined with uh, referenda and initiatives that were immune from gubernatorial veto. And the first one of these that passed was a California proposition in 1996. And it's remarkable, if you think about it, how quickly America changed after the passage of that proposition in 1996. Like a row of dominoes, red states and blue states all over the country started legalizing medical marijuana. And it is an incredible phenomenon how quickly it happened, especially when you realize that it wasn't that long ago in American history that even just possession of medical marijuana was viewed with incredible suspicion as a basis for not being able to get a government job, as a basis for being able to be fired, and as kind of a cultural marker against you. It really, really is a striking change and perhaps one of the greatest examples of the triumph of freedom of choice activism in America. So I, like a lot of the readers of Choose Your Medicine, had certain understandings about what uh, American medical history may have been or what attitudes are appropriate to have when it comes to drug regulation. And honestly, some of the historical information may have changed my, my mind or just made me think a little more deeply about things. What are you hoping people come away from reading your book having experienced or any any revelations you're you're hoping people are able to have that may inform what we're talking about now as citizens living in the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, if I could switch seats for one second, can I ask you what most surprised you about American history in this area um, compared yeah. to what you knew beforehand? Absolutely. So I had some familiarity with, say, the beginning of the FDA. If listeners are interested in that kind of topic, one of the ones I enjoyed is just a person with not much of a medical background. It was The Demon Under the Microscope by Thomas Hager about uh, sulfa drugs. I enjoyed that book. I knew that some things in the early history of medicine were not actually helpful to helping people survive. You know, I knew about the miasma theory. I understood that 
you were as a woman delivering a baby, probably much better off with a midwife than a doctor at many points in history. I had no idea that there were these political movements impacting the American medical profession and legal profession. There were huge movements that I had never heard of before. We we haven't even touched on uh, is the Tom the Tom. I don't even know how to say it. It's it's the Thompsonians. Thompsonians. And I was like, the Thompsonians? And, you know, you mentioned this once before, but I, I'd really like to to pull it out as something that struck me was, what strange bedfellows many of these battles had. There is not a clear line of these people are in favor of drugs being regulated. These people are not. It was so much more complex and interesting. And people had more points on their side than I thought they had in many areas. Or, you know, I live in a city where one of the major hospitals is named after Benjamin Rush. Rush Hospital, it's a fantastic institution. Now having read some of his, you know, views about, hey, just experiment on patients. You never know it'll work. And, you know, let's drain four-fifths of their blood from them. I'm like, Benjamin Rush, you killed so many people. So, that is a very long, rambling answer to your question to me, but I think the most striking thing that I came away with was I had no idea that there were so many of these political movements and such strange bedfellows in these debates. So, so that's a great kickoff to, to my comments. One thing I want people to really think about based on this book is what it means to be liberal or conservative in this context, because it is very hard to clearly label one side or another in these debates as liberal or conservative. And I'd like to point out, even when it comes to COVID, it seems like medical freedom has a particularly conservative valence now, but we haven't spoken about African-American hesitancy to take vaccines, which I've, I've seen in, in recent data, the, the, the white ga- uh, black gap has, has largely closed, but the, it's a real phenomenon. We haven't talked about Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and his progressive side resistance to vaccines and COVID measures. And I go back to that classroom that I've stand in front of every year in front of a group of largely self-professed liberals who say that uh, they resist FDA regulation that would prevent a person from being able to try a drug before approval. And throughout the book, you see these strange bedfellows. You see Bernie Sanders and Tom DeLay getting together on alternative medicine practice. You see Pelosi and Boehner on dietary supplements. You have Barney Frank and Newt Gingrich on medical marijuana. One of my favorite uh, things I discovered was a a clip from the old uh, CNN program where people yelled at each other. What was that called again? Crosstalk? Crossfire. Crossfire, Crossfire, that's right. Right, where uh, on the evening of the eve of, not the eve, the evening of the, uh, the AIDS demonstration at the FDA, um, one of the AIDS activists is talking to Pat Buchanan, and Pat Buchanan, hardly a famous friend of gay activists, said, this may astonish you, but I completely agree with you. 
on uh, access to AIDS drugs. So first of all, I want people to think about what their political commitments are and what, if any, impact that has on their views in this area. The second thing is it may be that younger Americans, younger than me, don't need this education. But for people of my generation and my parents' generation and my grandparents' generation, there was such a mid-century, 20th century, that is, faith in American expertise and in American education, scientific education and American institutions and American medicine, even the American media and American big business, which led to, especially in the years after the polio vaccine and the rise of modern antibiotics and so forth, kind of this almost passive acceptance of uh, the guidance of the American medical establishment. That is not normal in American history. And what we're going through now is not, as I said before, America going off the rails, but rather America largely returning to its normal state of mind with respect to these issues. And the period of the mid-20th century where you know, FDA regulation and pharmaceutical innovation and federal government health regulation were all accepted with relatively little pushback from Americans was a rare moment in American history, not the norm. Well, Lewis, thank you so much for coming on to talk about your book, Choose Your Medicine, Freedom of Therapeutic Choice in America. If people are interested in reaching out to you, buying your book, hearing more about these issues, where could they go? Well, the book is uh, published by Oxford University Press and is therefore um, available in all the uh, normal ways you would buy a book, uh, not just through Oxford University Press, but available from your favorite online or brick-and-mortar bookseller. Information about me is available both on um, my Amazon author page, but also on the American University Washington College of Law website on my faculty page. And I love talking about these issues, and I'd love to hear from readers. And thank you to my listeners for joining us for this episode. If you enjoyed this, please rate review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.